Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James, the book of James. This is where we will be for the next 12 or 15 weeks. We've been in the book of Hebrews. If it's easy enough, just open up there. It's the book to the right. It's the next book. And that is not why we're doing this book next, although that would be easy enough for me just to keep turning the page. It is complementary to Hebrews in many ways. If the book of Hebrews was written to a congregation persecuted and therefore attempted to leave their confession of Christ while trying to keep Christian ethics and a way of living, then this book is written to Christians persecuted who are tempted to leave off their ethics, the faithful Christian life, while telling themselves that they maintain a faithful confession of Christ. Uh, really the same world and the same pressures, uh, different churches and different situation. We will read the whole of chapter 1 to begin. Our verse for this morning uh, will be just the first verse, uh, but we'll start with the whole of the first chapter, and there's a good reason for that, which I'll explain a little later. Let's read together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being a no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's a religious, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word for us this morning. Visited with an old friend recently, asked him how he was doing. Recent trip to the doctor's office, in his own words, the doctor put the fear of God in me, and I had a come to Jesus moment. Now, doctors can do that. Uh, they can see below the surface of things. They can see what you can't. Now, sometimes uh, you can see it or feel it. No one else can. Sometimes you don't see anything, but everyone else can tell something is wrong. Sometimes no one can see it, not even you. Maybe you should, but you've gotten so used to it. It's just how it is. But a good doctor with the right instruments will reveal what is actually there. And so you get your diagnosis, and you're shocked. The fear of God is put into you, and you make some changes with respect to your future, changes perhaps in behavior and how you care for yourself that you never thought you could make, but that appointment and that news, and you're a changed person. Uh, In this friend's case, it was that he stopped smoking two months ago, And uh, after many, 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 many years, years ago, he had quit, and then uh, his house burned down, and he asked the firefighter for a cigarette, and that was it. (laughs) So he was back at it, and um, uh, tried some different things. It's addictive, just like we are addictive creatures, not singling that matter out. But this appointment, and he quit cold turkey. He was proud of it. That doctor's help and a little help from his friends, he may be good to go, at least on that front. Has some appointments coming up, and I have him in my prayers. James is a very good physician. He's a physician of the human soul. Like my friend's physician, he's an honest physician who speaks a stern, clear word from concern for the person. This book is very sharp, and it feels ungracious at times. I will show you that it is not. But even in its sternness, it's not ungracious. It's just our inadequate hearing. It's a stern word from deep concern. Well, what does James see in his readers that means he says all that he He says, we just read the first chapter. Well, we'll see that in a bit. First things first, we need to meet James. It's time to meet James. Who is James and who are his readers? Who is this physician and can we trust him? Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. That's how he begins. Uh, We know enough from the very beginning that this is a letter, not a story, or some other kind of literature like poetry. It's a letter, which means it's from a writer to readers, which means there's an historical circumstance that gave rise to the letter. That is how they work. And we should need to and intend to search that historical circumstance out that we might hear the author on his own terms. The conviction of this sermon and this series is that we can and will hear the voice of God, an astounding thought, if we hear James speaking to his readers. We'll hear God's voice to us today if we hear correctly James speaking to his readers then. Or put negatively, we will either not hear God's word to us or we will hear something else and think it's God's word if we do not properly tend to that original human author's words through whom the Lord spoke to his readers back then. God speaks through human authors. He blows the human author like wind in a sail. It really is the human author carving that path through the water and leaving awake, but it really is the Lord, the Spirit blowing like wind in the sail of the author. And so we cannot bring them apart. So we spend time this morning getting to know James. Now, you say, oh, well, this is easy. Um, James is easy. James is famous, you might know, for direct, memorable, um, and vivid, practical Words. Even this first chapter, you were thinking, oh, yes, after Hebrews. The end of Hebrews is more concrete, but this will be refreshing. That's why Trent picked this book. And to some extent, that's the case. We move between testaments, we move between genre, we move between types of literature for a balanced diet, and that is part of what's going on here. But there is more going on. James is not famous for its logic and its order. If you've read it before, you've thought, how is this organized? And this is not like reading a letter by the Apostle Paul if you've read one of his letters straight through. Uh, James seems to pick up this topic and then bring this up over here and and bring it up again over here. And what is that all about? Uh, And so some conclude this is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's just a collection of proverbial wisdom sayings, and uh, the order doesn't matter very much. Um, you can kind of turn the page and grab your verse, and you're good, you're good to go. And this is that book, famous for those one-liners. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it, and he generously gives. The tongue, it's like a fire And I could go on. If the Lord wills, we would go here and do this or that. An important line to avoid pride and presumption. We are not God. And all of these, in a way, they do stand on their own. But I propose that we would make a mistake to head into James, approaching this as a letter full of material that could be delivered in any order or in any way, or that is disjointed, or a general collection of of applications for the Christian life, Christian ethics, a little compendium. Is there an order to it after all? 
And I believe that there is. There is coherence to this book, I hope to show you, rooted in the personal concern of the author for specific people. So given the nature of James and feeling a little scattered and that he writes this book to to the 12 tribes scattered about the nations, some take it not only as just like a New Testament book of Proverbs, uh, one-liners, but also take it as general for everyone, not with anyone specific in mind. And one reason I don't think that's a good thought is that this book seems to be energized by a very personal concern for what sounds like a real actual problem. And this would be a fairly negative book were it just a general treatise on uh, how to live as a Christian. It's too negative for that. There seems to be an overriding concern. Uh, So I hope you'll see. And if we can see that there's coherence to the book and a personal pastoral concern for real people, that's actually the way to its relevance for you and me. We think that by just skimming across the book or a book and thinking, how does it apply to me, we get application for us, and that spending time on the original situation and on the logic of the book and how it's ordered is like getting in the way of that. There's that, but you can take it or leave it. What I really need is what to do or, or what not to do. Well, I would put to you that the best way into the relevance of the biblical text for you and me today is through the window of its relevance for the original readers. And when you understand their situation and their troubles, you find that there is overlap with yours, and then you find that there's coherence to the whole book, and then you can hear it for yourself. In other words, if we put in the work and we're disciplined about this, we are removed by 2,000 years, we will be all the better for it. And some of those verses you may be familiar with, even that I've read from uh, James, the first chapter, or quoted from other chapters, you will find have layers and layers for you and connect to your life in ways you never thought. So let's put in the work in every sermon and then at the head of the series, even now. There is coherence here rooted in a pastoral concern for specific people. We'll go about this in three movements, super easy, getting to know James, getting to know the readers, and getting to know ourselves. I had about four different possible outlines before I committed this one, and then I thought of this one, and I liked it the best. It is about as simple as it's going to get, and the beginning of the letter should feel that way. This is not a heavy verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. So let's get to know James. What does James want us to know about himself? Well, in the first place, he is the brother of Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus. He calls himself James. I love how the name of the author goes at the beginning of these New Testament letters. When you get a letter from somebody, like a long, long email or a two-page paper letter, it's like a game of guess. Who's writing to you? You know, you get your name and then you got to start reading. And unless they say their name, it appears at the end. Now, you can flip and look, but it kind of feels like cheating, doesn't it? So you see the return address, you know, on the the envelope or at the top of the email. It all works itself out. This just seems right. James to addressees. 
That's what he does. Well, the question is, which James? I have a friend, his name is Matt Jones, and uh, I love his music. He's an independent artist in Albuquerque, and when he, years ago, went to start, you know, get a website, um, Matt Jones was taken, and he probably knew that was coming, by another artist, actually. So he named himself and his group The Real Matt Jones. And so you can listen to his music. He's the real Matt Jones. I love Matt. Um, You know, who's the real James? There's about four Jameses mentioned throughout the New Testament. It could. It could be. I'm saying it's the brother of James. Why am I saying that it's the brother of James? He doesn't say that. Don't you think you'd want to say that if you were the brother of Jesus? Excuse me, the brother of Jesus. I would put to you that at least an argument, I won't get into all of them, at least an argument that this is James, the brother of Jesus, is that he doesn't say it. James, the brother of Jesus, was the prominent leader among the saints at the church in Jerusalem, well-known, and that he didn't have to say it means that it's self-evident. The other Jameses would have had to say, James, fill in the blank, But not this James, not James, the brother of Jesus. It's enough for him to say James. The significance of this for us is that James apparently did not believe that he is owed a hearing on the basis of authority established in his physical relationship with Jesus. I mean, you would think he'd bring it up. I grew up with him. I knew him. He doesn't bring it up at all. His authority to speak to his readers and to us this morning lies elsewhere. And that's not insignificant. My authority to speak to you is right here. This book. This is the apostolic word delivered to us. And my job is to deliver this word to you. My authority as a pastor is derivative and circumscribed by this book. It's not mine on my own. No credentials that I bring to this establish me as an authority among you to speak the word of God. Oh, you can get training and have experience in all of that. But my authority and our authority to speak to each other from James is because James was, secondly, a servant of God. He was the brother of Jesus. He is, secondly, a servant of God. He says it right here, no surprise. He's from a Jewish family, Jesus' family. He's the son of Mary, a godly Jewish woman. No surprise. What is a surprise is that he calls himself a servant or a slave of God. That's his way of saying Everything that I'm going to say to you, I am saying in full and complete submission to the one true and living God of heaven. This isn't essentially me talking here, but me speaking as one under authority. He is a servant, a slave of God. Now, this is a book famous for all of its practical teaching. But let me put to you that it is no less theological. 
Oh, he will unpack in chapter 3 this very vivid illustration of the destructive power of the tongue in a paragraph. But don't miss the one-line reasons and motivations all throughout the book. If I added them up, I'll do it at some point in this series. Dozens of them. Take a highlighter. Every theological claim, put a highlight next to you. You'll mark the whole book up. Don't think of James as merely practical and not theological. There is an iceberg of material underneath what shows above the surface, and I won't let us neglect that, so I'll lead you in that. But you can get ahead of me and search the book out yourself, a very practical and theologically practical book, which is to say, as we go through here, let us not exhort one another and motivate one another to change which is what this book is about, apart from the knowledge of God, a vision of him, and with reference to him. He's the reason for it. James, the brother of Jesus, the servant of God, and the servant of the Lord Jesus, he says. Well, this is what he thinks of his brother, his older brother, Lord, Master. As important, this is what the early Christians apparently thought of Jesus. The book of James is likely our earliest New Testament letter, written before the letters of Paul and Peter and John. This would be likely our very earliest New Testament letter. And you say, if you were to read through it, yes, and interesting, Trent, he only mentions Jesus twice. That is true. He is not having to argue for the divinity of or the atonement of Jesus. He can assume it, But here's a little teaser. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's not one part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that is not reflected in the book of James. There is not one part of the book of James that does not reflect on the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Jesus' most famous sermon has been the work of study for his brother, James. So that James has so internalized it that when he goes to write to the churches, he is, it is as if re-preaching and personalizing the teaching of Jesus. Dozens and dozens and dozens of references and connections, sometimes direct quotes or illusions or uses of the same phrase or theme or ground for a command. It's awesome And we will get to some of that as we go. That's just to say, he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ twice, but the book is an exposition of one of Jesus' sermons. Make sense? It's fully Christ-centered in that respect. Getting to know James. Let's move on now to our readers, getting to know James' readers. What do we know about them? Sometimes you'll read those articles about uh, a letter that was found behind a machine at the post office, and it's been a hundred and million years, and they're trying to find the, 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 the recipient. Who are they? Where are they? And, and sure enough, you know, the letter is delivered. This is a 2,000-year-old letter. I exaggerated early, earlier. You only hear post office isn't that old. You get where I'm going. This is an old letter. Uh, it's a lot older. So what can we know about the, the, 
first readers if, as I'm putting to you, that's important. Well, we'll do some detective work and we'll do this in four steps. Uh, First, an acknowledgement that we have our work cut out for us. If this were postmarked today, it would get a return to sender note. Okay? To the 12 tribes of the dispersion. All right, you don't write letters to tribes, whole tribes, bigger than families, and not 12 of them at a time. Um, Now, maybe if they were in one house, uh, or were a whole community, but in the dispersion, in other words, scattered among the nations. So not only do we have a two-field which includes a whole lot of people, but we have a two-field which includes a whole lot of people in a whole lot of places. This one goes back to the sender. First, an acknowledgement that this is not an easy task. Second, uh, well, it's actually obvious, so we could say that. The 12 tribes, we know who that is, right? The 12 tribes of Israel, the tribes that descended from the children of Abraham. Abraham, that one who received the promise from God, through whom God would bring salvation to the world. The 12 tribes of Israel, easy enough. In the dispersion, okay, where are they? Granted, there are a lot of different places, but we know what this is. As the Old Testament speaks about, the people of God spread out among the nations, the Gentiles of the earth, following the Assyrian and Babylonian victories over the people of God in Israel. A hard part of Israel's story, they're scattered abroad. It is because of their own sin that the Lord brought that curse upon them. God was not done with them. I'm just saying, we know what he's talking about here. It's a lot of people in a lot of places, but at least this isn't obscure language. Oh, but wait, step three. James is writing to Christians. He speaks about the Lord Jesus. He addresses them time and again as my beloved brothers, a reference which includes both men and women who are in Christ. He speaks about the unity of the faith that he has with them in chapter 2. He's writing to Christians, not to the 12 tribes that are descended from Abraham. And as it is, many of the Jews, they were called at the time, were actually in Jerusalem and in Israel and not scattered abroad. So is he not writing to them? This is confusing. This is confusing. Oh, but step four, not really, because Christ has come. I could turn to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah for very specific promises that the Lord will return his people, gathering them from among the nations in which they are scattered and gathering them home to himself. In the Gospel of Mark, the Lord Jesus selects how many disciples, appoints how many apostles, but 12. And that number, given other things that Jesus is doing and miracles he's performing and messages that he's proclaiming, comes as an indication that the fullness of time has come 
And the promises of God are coming to fruition in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is regathering his scattered people. And the 12 disciples represent that gathering back together. How could it be heard any other way? And Mark chapter 19 speaks of how he and they will sit on thrones and judge the nations. This gathering of 12 disciples in the Gospels before Jesus' resurrection in the Spirit and the birth of the church is an indication that that work promised by the prophets is coming to fruition in Jesus and that that group of 12 is a nucleus that will give rise to the church, which is God's new covenant people, made up of Jew and Gentile. Because in Amos, God will promise that he'll gather his people back to himself and restore the tent of David and gather his people from among Edom, which is the nations. In other words, he's going to gather his people, not only who are scattered among the nations, but those who are from the nations to himself. And in the coming of Jesus, that becomes all the clearer. We see it in maybe a subtle way, a narrative form in the gospels, but we see it in more direct ways in Paul's speaking of one new humanity, Jew and Gentile. And we see it in this way as he speaks to comfort his readers is by addressing them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. All that the prophets promised has come about in Jesus and is at work in you. How encouraging is this for those who are themselves actually scattered, likely after Peter's death. Or excuse me, after persecution and they would be scattered. So if I'm right and that's the case, why does he address them this way? Well, it is largely, if not almost entirely, a Jewish audience. So that's why. These are mostly Jewish people who have become Christians scattered about. They would wholeheartedly resonate with this language. And they would understand James to be identifying them with the story of Scripture. And those who had been persecuted before Israel in slavery in Egypt... They're a part of that large story, but they find themselves on this side of the story, on the fulfillment side of the story. What great, 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 great news. So that's who James's readers are. We learn more about them and their character and issues later, and we'll get to that under the next header. We are also the proper readers of this book, but we read it relative to the historical situation of the reader. See, this is one of the dangers of not understanding the historical situation of a book like this and thinking carefully about our relationship with it. Is you could end up reading it and reading it with a straight line from the text to you rather than from James to his readers and in this whole process, the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to say some things to his readers, which may not be true of our church and you, we'll have to discern for ourselves. And I'll have to do that work to discern for our church. But in some cases, I may be able to say, keep up the good work. Praise God for what he's done. James helps us understand how we're healthy in this respect. In other cases, James is helping us stay healthy and prepare for times when things get harder for us. And in some cases, it may be the surgery we need right now, right now. In any case, it is God's word for us. But now that we've done that work of getting to know James and his readers well enough, let's get to know ourselves. This is what the Bible does for us, isn't it? 
the living and active word, the Holy Spirit's word to us, and in getting to know ourselves, we'll rummage around the book as I'll show you some things for a little, a little tour of the material. It's not a huge book, so you can turn here and there in it with me. First, three potentially deadly symptoms. We are listening in in this book to the report, if you will, of one physician, James, to a set of churches in the first century, but we're getting a sense of how it all works, and we can see if their symptoms are our symptoms. And so here are three potentially deadly symptoms that we see. Hopefully you'll see the unity of the book as we do a little bit of this. In chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, for anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the whole book. This is part of how we make sense of what feels like a scattered set of themes that keep coming up again. In chapter 1, he says most of what he's going to say in the rest of the book, but in miniature form, and it doesn't follow the exact order he'll get to it in. It's a, it's a burst of material to begin the book by way of introduction, and he expands on all of it as we go. Now look with me in chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2, not many of you should become teachers, my beloved brothers. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And he gives illustrations of bits in the mouths of horses and a rudder of a ship. Small things that steer big things and then a small fire, a small, maybe unthreatening thing that can tear up a whole town. And burn your house and your life down. He speaks to them about the tongue. In the first chapter, he mentions the tongue and anger. What we have in this church, these churches, James is concerned for their fiery tongues, and that's the first symptom, a fiery tongue. They're speaking cruelly against each other, to each other. Verse chapter 4, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not your passions at war within you? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. In this case, I don't think this is our problem, and praise God for that. But it could be. How do we maintain our health? We keep that command, not speaking evil against each other. Observing the tongue as a small flame that can set a whole church on fire. Oh, yes, it can. So we'll get to all of that. But that first symptom, hopefully you can just see with a little scan there, is that this church has an issue with anger, anger at each other, and then biting jealous, bitter words about each other and to each other. They love hearing the word of God. They just don't like listening to each other. They love talking about good preaching, But then they use their very tongues to curse each other, made in the very image of God who spoke to them in the word. So, fiery tongues, that's the first thing, first symptom to look out for. If you don't have it, praise God, watch out for it. If we don't have it, to whatever extent that is, watch out for it. 
Second symptom, so we've got fiery tongues, vision problems. Back to chapter 1, for where he introduces the issue. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. He introduces this matter of the rich and the poor. We get a sense of the demographics at this church now. In chapter 2, he expands. Verse 22, see that faith was active along with works. One second, let me make sure I'm in the right place. I'm not. Someone call it out. Where's the section on partiality? Verse 2. Yeah, yeah, sorry, there's no 22. There is, but that's not it. All right, for if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes in your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the other, you stand over there. He says at the beginning of chapter two, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Partiality, drawing lines. They're seeing with human eyes, not spiritual eyes. They're drawing lines in the wrong place because they can't see right. I'm calling that vision problems to make it memorable. There's fiery tongues. There's vision problems. There's hearing loss. They're hearing the word, but they're not putting that into work. Faith without works is dead. I'm calling that a hearing problem because they're professing faith and what they hear, but they're not putting that to work with one another. All right, so easy to remember. Fiery tongues, vision problems, hearing loss. It comes in, but it doesn't take. It doesn't translate. How severe is the problem? Let me show you a repeated theme in this book. Verse 15 And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. That's where he's using the word sin to capture all of this. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's where it goes. That's what's at stake. So with that at stake, we should have our ears open now for real, to hear with faith and to to respond. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Oh, that's scary. So this is a situation in which they have a condition, but they can't feel it. They can't see it, and they need convincing that they're in it. The stakes are high, so we should want to know if we're in the same one. Look at the very end of the book, chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, sin theme again there, from his wandering will save his soul from death. There's the stakes, ends of the encouraging word that there is hope for those of us who are self-deceived. But that word wander there, it's the same word for deceive used in chapter 1. He's kind of bookended his book with this theme of trials and a few other things, but including this matter of self-deception and deception. He says, don't be deceived over here. And he says, if anyone brings back someone who's deceived themselves, he's saved a sinner from death. Why is it translated wandering? 
Well, the history of words is always a little interesting. Planao is where it comes from. Both get the same different translation, same word. Planao. They would use that word to speak of the, uh, speak of the planets and the sky. You'd have the stars when you'd look up at night. But some of them moved. <laughs> what James is after is steadfastness and an unmoving Christianity. Not wandering and moving and instability blown about by wind or being deceived and deceiving yourself. Put all that together. Sometimes you don't know you're sick and your heart is callous to use some of Paul's language and over time you don't know you're as far from God as you are. Are you stuck in a particular sin? Are you stuck in their sin of slander against a brother or a sister or taking this very close to your home against your wife? Or husbands speaking cruelly to them or about them to children or other family members or neighbors or church members. You've gotten used to that. Let me tell you, that's not normal. It's not right. It's not godly. Whether that's your thing or it's lust and acting on lust or there are other sins that aren't listed in this book. Whatever your form of self-deception is, the very call to not be deceived and that some need to be chased down from wandering should have us all on our toes, edge of our seats, that the stakes are spiritual death should have us self-suspicious at least. So let's be self-suspicious, all of us here, that maybe we're in the crossfire of James's words. It doesn't mean that it's the case. It's possible to have a clear conscience, but it is possible also to sear our consciences. And he's saying, don't be deceived. So the stakes are high and the condition, at least for these churches, is severe. But thankfully, there's help. James continues with a twofold diagnosis. I'll put it this way. The fractured relationships in these churches that he's writing to is a symptom of something deeper. A fracturing in the very soul of the people who are so divisively and cruelly at each other. It's a fracturing in the person that leads to a fracturing of the relationships. That's where to look. That's where to look. But even that is itself a result of something deeper. So I'm calling it a twofold diagnosis. Something deeper, and that is a fractured relationship with God. Thankfully, thankfully, if you have a problem with God this morning, and your relationship with him is fractured and you've been self-deceiving yourself and that's manifest in all kinds of sins and brokenness and fractured relationships you feel like you can't do anything about, oh, there's a message God has for you in a moment and it pervades the book, so hang on. But that claim, I think, is right. James speaks to us and he says to us in the very heart of the book. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's the double-mindedness, the fracturedness. He uses the same language in the chapter 1 as he introduces it in verse 8. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Back up to verse 4. You adulterous people, he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, this double-mindedness, this splitness, this fracture within your person, within us, is owing to a fracture in our relationship with God. That's why he calls them an adulterous people. He addresses them as brother and beloved brother throughout the book. But then at what is probably the emotional climax of the book, the most intense and heated moment of the book, right there in chapter 4, he doesn't say beloved brothers. He says, you adulterous people. And he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You see, opposition to God, a broken relationship with God, a fractured relationship with the living God. The nice thing about a diagnosis is at least you know what it is, right? At least we know what it is. A twofold diagnosis, a double-mindedness. And as we'll see through the book of James, that is a way to understand how the whole book hangs together. Faith without works. We speak, we curse our brother who's made in God's image, but then we praise God. There's a fracture in the soul that allows us to do that. Um, our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. So we say yes, but then we cover it, we throw a bunch of uh, claims around it to, to, to thicken up uh, our hearer's confidence that we'll actually do what we say. Uh, because we're just not honest people and it's kind of known out there. The book's various practical instructions can be hung together with this unifying theme of a diagnosis of double-mindedness rooted in a fracture in our relationship with God. And it's good to know the diagnosis. It comes from God himself, an authoritative source, James, who's a servant of the Lord Jesus. And thankfully, we have one achievable goal. He starts off right at the beginning, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, and here's the hope, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if the problem in the diagnosis is double-mindedness, a fracture in the person's soul due to a fracture in the relationship with God, then the goal, which apparently is achievable, is completeness, steadfastness, an unmoving way, like the stars, not the planets in the sky. A knowledge of oneself, not self-deception in a calloused way toward God and others. And all of that rooted in a restored relationship with God. So back to chapter 4 with me. God opposes the proud, verse 6, but he gives grace to the humble. And would you know that he says, not just he gives grace to the humble, but still he gives more grace. Maybe my favorite line in the book this is not just a stern word from a concerned physician. It is a very hopeful word 
from a very good physician. We should say physician's assistant to the Lord Jesus, who is the great physician. And there is great hope for as you draw near to God, even as one who has been self-deceived with a fracture in your soul, God draws near to you. This book, with that stern word, you adulterous people, is that you this morning? I don't think it's our church, but is it you this morning? Have you been spiritually unfaithful to God, manifest in your broken relationships, a sign that there's a fracture in your soul, an evidence that you have a broken relationship with God and you are wandering and you're in danger of death spiritually? The good news for all of us this morning is that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. He gives us grace and we think we need more. We're right. We still need more grace and he gives more grace. Which is why we end on this note. We have one achievable goal, although he does acknowledge that we stumble in many ways. So we will until Jesus comes. And we end with all the help we need. Oh, all the help we need. He gives more grace. He draws near to those who draw near to him. He opposes the proud. So this does require repentance and genuine faith that moves toward God with ears to hear what he has to say for real and not just as a connoisseur of his word as a delicacy or a matter of aesthetic. He gives more grace and so we have all the help we need from God. We also have all the help we need from God through his people. Now in chapter 5, we'll end with this encouraging word. Verse 19, my brothers, if any of you among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Be encouraged that you, Christian friend, have many helpers in this room and they are God's instruments in your life to help you see what you cannot see so that you might become what you are not now. And be encouraged as well that you are a needed helper to your brothers and your sisters, your beloved brothers and your sisters. For as upset as James was with these hearers, shocking them into reality, nevertheless, he repeatedly addresses them as beloved brother. So let us address one another in that very way. James is indeed a practical book, but be careful of becoming a consumer consumer of practical words, merely. It's a painful book. It's painfully practical. But if we receive it the right way, we will find that it is even more productive than it is painful. Let us receive it then as a word from God. And let us receive it as those dearly loved by God, the recipients of his grace and as those to whom the Lord has drawn near. We've met James, and we've met his book. We'll see you next week for chapter 2. Let us pray, and then share in the Lord's table. Oh, Father, we give thanks to you for this word, this gracious word. We pray for help to receive it humbly. We need your help to receive it humbly. Do a great work in us. Show us what we can't see. Stern words at times. But give us faith to see what we cannot see. To believe truly. uh, To work out what we believe. And to help one another 
in all of this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.